The following program contains language and themes which may not be suitable for everybody. Good evening. The Supreme Court said no to the government and yes to the newspapers, voting 6-3 to three to let the New York Times and the Washington Post... The latest batch of Pentagon papers shows how deeply the U.S. was involved in Vietnam even during the Eisenhower administration. For example, by 1958... One Vietnam possible way of dealing with all-out Chinese intervention, which was secretly discussed at the time, was with nuclear weapons. The way to handle this now is for us to have Walters call it back right and just say, stay the hell out of this. Do you remember your President Nixon? We have a cancer within the close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur, because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Welcome back to episode two of the Heart and Hand Curl Pod crossover here, Watergate 50. And of course, joining me, Shane Nicholson, is David Edgar. Hi, David. Hello, everyone. Hello, Shane. Yes, uh, Shane and David, professors of Nixonology at the University of this show, uh, are back <laughs> to discuss uh, the build up to yeah. the events of 50 years ago. And I think that we set the scene on who the main man was last week but uh, this week we're going to set the scene on his team and their thinking and what shaped the thinking going into Watergate because nothing of course happens in a vacuum nobody woke up one morning and said I think we should burgle the Watergate and uh, there's always always little arms and legs that connect things and the next White House was murkier than most No, there, there, there's a whole cast of characters here that we're going to, well, we're, we're going to get through the big ones for you because, I mean, knowing them and knowing their motivations is critical to how all this unfolds. And then we're going to, we're going to go through, well, the, some of the doozy scandals that go on parallel to Watergate, including the one that, that truly without, I, I don't think, well, I, I, I don't think we see the resignation and, and downfall of Nixon without the Pentagon Papers. And the uh, revelations that come from those during the, the, the trial of Daniel Ellsberg and, and the, uh, of course, he released uh, audio tapes from the Nixon White House during Watergate that, that revealed well, just the, the lengths that they would go to to uh, terrorize a private citizen. Mm. Um, that without all that, yeah, I, I, you know, you probably end up with some resignations of H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman and, and, you know, John Mitchell might end up in prison still. But uh, I don't think you get the big one in Nixon walking out of the White House on August 9th, 1974, without uh, yeah, and everything that went on with with the Pentagon Papers. So, no, I would totally agree with that. I think that what is illuminating about this 
Uh, first of all, there's the, the, the huge irony. There are two and a half million words in the Pentagon Papers. Not one of them is to do with Richard Nixon. Nope. nope. So, um, <laughs> Ended in 1967. <laughs> yep. So uh, this was an entirely Democrat-centric piece of work. It was a study we're, we're going to explain to, to those of you who are, not, who are not sure what we're referring to. But what I think is very clear, and again, you know, the tapes illustrate this, but so do contemporaneous notes and memos that went between the main players who were just about to give you this this cast of characters. Um, it was right from the start. It was, you know, the, the, the thought process, Shane, was always the negative. So not can we learn anything from this or should we just be upfront about it? Because it didn't, it wouldn't have hurt them. But no, we, we've got to go after the guy who leaked it. And it, it's yep. this, play the man, not the ball. And it, it just is so baked in to the Nixon White House that they do this, that we mentioned last week, Nixon's first urge was always attack, attack, attack. And it's his downfall. I mean, it was his yeah. strength. I think we mentioned that last week. I don't think either of us believe that he would have been anywhere near the White House had he not been this driven. But when you're driven negatively, the line of where you stop becomes so elastic and you can keep pushing it back and you can keep pushing it back. Um, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, the Pentagon Papers, ironically launching the day after Nixon has said himself, his happiest day in politics um, because he was uh, present at the, the marriage of his daughter, Trisha Cox, to his hero's grandson, uh, David Eisenhower. Yes, uh, for, it was, for it was he. And he was uh, he even danced at the ceremony, <laughs> which is very unnixon like. Yes. And he he said himself, uh, the the quote is, "For that day, we were just simply beautifully happy." And he looks it. Yeah. Uh, of course, he immediately then the next day when he's sitting reviewing, uh, he said, uh, "Have the networks been showing it?" And they said, "Well, they showed." highlights of it yesterday if that was the damn kennedys they'd be showing it all week on prime time <laughs> so even in this moment of of serene beauty and and you know his daughter looks lovely it's a white house getting married in the white house you know incredible how many times have that happened and the the guest list is basically a who's who of the american century <laughs> and and it, you know it's not called the american century for no reason and it it just shows you, though, the, the desperation. But I think Shane and I are going to point the finger today uh, at one of the people we're going to introduce you to, Henry Kissinger, a man who has had more lives than the proverbial cat, a man who's at the centre of so many scandals, yet always seems to emerge untainted. Just and after, mur murdered millions of people. In his after life. a while, you begin <laughs> to question what the common denominator in all of these scandals are. <laughs> and he, there's old Henry usually there. But I think if we're going to start off, Shane, we, we have to start off with Nixon's son of a bitch, H.R. Bob Haldeman. <laughs> yes, the second most powerful man in America. And the man who... Uh, is on the tapes the day after that wedding discussing this stuff. And and the, the, the Pentagon Papers almost come up as a as an afterthought. It's it's something right at the end of the conversation. And Nixon's obviously, you know, he's getting ready to get up. He says, is there anything else? And Haldeman kind of, well, yeah, there's this piece in the Times about these uh, these leaked uh, Pentagon documents that may, may come off bad. And, of course, Nixon and Haldeman immediately turn to, 
as we said, well, this this doesn't have anything to do with us. You well, know, they were, they were they, this is Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson. So how yeah. how can we turn this to, to pin it on the Democrats? And th- yeah. this is, of course, in the lead up to the 1972 election. You know, this yeah. is this is June of 71. They've already got their eyes turned towards 72 and Haldeman yeah. immediately goes to work. Uh, well, that, as he would, Bob, just how, how can I fuck something up for somebody else? I mean, that was. Well, Pretty much his entire job as chief of staff. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's you know introduce him. Um, Bob Holderman was uh, an advertising executive yep. and a very successful one in California. Oh, um, yeah. Attracted to Nixon early, uh, as he said, he was. And this is maybe something to keep in mind about the, the all the people Holderman, Ehrlichman, Kissinger. They're not Republican with a big R. Really, no. they're not party hacks. They're Nixon men, and that is important. That 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 small differential. Yes, they're conservative. They're broadly conservative in their politics, but they have no allegiance to the Republican Party, as in any deference or any worship of it. Haldeman was an advertising executive. He'd volunteered for Nixon's campaign in 1960, and had grown closer to him throughout the years. 68 becomes his chief of staff. Shane. For those of us over here who maybe don't really understand the chief of staff job, you mentioned they're the second most powerful man in the world. Tell us a little bit about why that is the case, because it's it it it's not a false statement. No, it well, and it really depends on on the White House that you're operating in. I mean, in Haldeman's case, I think he was only the fourth uh, person to hold the, the the job. It was something that came into creation under um, uh, Eisenhower, um, and I, I mean, effectively. You hold the, the, the president's calendar mm. and, and everything in your hand. And you are, especially, I mean, Haldeman really revolutionized this part of the job. You are the voice of the president when he's not in the room. Um, you, you pretty much Brilliant set everything around. I mean, you set everything around how the president's day and operations and everything goes through you. Mm. You know, in between. You control Haldeman access. And, oh, yeah. No, you're it. And you, I mean, Haldeman, of course. Haldeman and, and another man that we'll get to here in a minute, John Ehrlichman, uh, the, the so-called Berlin Wall, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the White House staff, because you did not get to Nixon without going through one of them, usually yep. both of them. I uh, Usually both, absolutely. And as, as Shane said, they were called the Berlin Wall. John Ehrlichman, uh, another, uh, he was a lawyer, a very smart lawyer, and mm-hmm. again, signed up to the Nixon campaign, not to the Republican Party, to the Nixon campaign. It's the man that attracts them. Nixon when he got to the White House, didn't want to see people. And that might sound no. odd, but we've talked about this last week, that he was an introvert in an extrovert's position. And he would do it, he would go out and do the campaigning, but he didn't like to be around people. And this included his family. And yeah. it was Ehrlichman and, and Haldeman's job to... To say sorry, the president can't see you, Mrs. Nixon. Yeah, the president con- can't constantly run interference with anyone trying to get near trying the, to get the, the to the office. Yep. And people thought it was them, but it came from Nixon. It was his instruction. The other thing, of course, that Holderman is charged with um, by Nixon is make sure my ideas get done, but not the stupid ones. Yeah. So if Nixon's loaded. Right. And he says, uh, I think we should nuke China. Go and send that instruction. Haldeman's job was to go, right, we don't do that one. And yeah. Nixon would say to him, and it's on the tapes where he said, you didn't do that, did you? And Haldeman <laughs> will go, no, of course not, right? And and that that was a part of it. Haldeman also controlled the White House. He had a famous um, memo system called the Tickler, 
and it was basically have you got this done constantly um memos i think are a great metaphor for the way because they're cold and impersonal and instant we would have emails now but back then they almost had a sort of prototype of that uh and he controlled everything he was cold very austere crew cut the famous crew cut oh yeah um and as he said, every president needs a son of a bitch. I'm Nixon's son of a bitch. He would he would be the one who said no, which Nixon found very difficult. Nixon couldn't do one-on-one confrontation, um, whereas Holderman would. Ehrlichman, very smart. Everyone who dealt with him says it. Very clever. Had a dry, sarcastic wit. Quite combative, they all were. Um, and as, as Shane said, they were known as uh, the Berlin Wall because you couldn't get past them to the president if they didn't want you, uh, you to. So there comes the, the power. Uh, when they get in, he becomes chief of staff. Ehrlichman becomes a domestic policy advisor, even though he's got no interest in domestic policy. No. Well, it, it famous, you know, the, the, this to, to, to Nixon's, um, I don't know, ambivalence to parts of the job. Uh, I, I believe there, there, there's a memo released by, by Nixon in 1970 to all of his top aides about domestic policy, saying that, you know, unless it was like crime or uh, school integration was obviously a, a big ongoing issue in the, in the, in the racial uh, desegregation matters or, or massive economic issues. Uh, so, quote, I'm only interested when we make a major breakthrough or have a major failure. Otherwise, don't <laughs> bother me. Yeah, don't bother me. <laughs> he once described domestic politics. He said, uh, America could run uh, without a president domestically. We should leave yep. that to Congress and the states. A president should just be for foreign policy. And he described domestic policy as building outhouses in Peoria. So he had zero <laughs> interest in any of this stuff. So it was a huge portfolio to give Ehrlichman. Um, the third now, Lyndon Johnson, famously, three TVs in the room, which... Nixon had taken out, incidentally. Nixon liked to genuinely just sit and think. And it's quite an interesting thing, Shane. I was thinking about this as, as I was making my notes for today's show. We don't actually allow time for that in an office, do we? If you've got no. a problem, to sit down and actually just have a think. Yeah. You have to be seen to be doing something. But he would like time to just sit with his legal pad and scroll out ideas. Um, he get that, and a uh, uh, prodigious phone user, LBJ, would phone... Mm. And he had a huge complex. He, he, he had one in the shitter. I mean. He had one in the shitter. He could phone you while he and did uh, phone people yeah, while well, he was fa- in the... famously held many staff meetings while taking the shit. While so. taking the shit. Um, but Nixon had had a tight. He had that taken out as well, and had yep. a tiny little phone that had three buttons. And as as LBJ said, he's got this dinky little phone. It's only got three buttons, and they all go to Germans. <laughs> the, the third. Uh, who actually was a German rather than of German extraction, like uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman were, was, of course, Henry Kissinger. Ah, Henry Kissinger. Um, Now, first of all, I think we need to put in some context about Kissinger. He did grow up in Nazi Germany. Oh, yes. And and he lost family members during the war. Now, that is going to shape your policy. Um, I think there's this automatic belief among us who haven't experienced war, Shane, that it makes you more humane and value the price of life. I'd say it went the opposite way with Kissinger. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think it, it turned Kissinger into a horrible, vindictive, just... Dark hell- person. Yeah. With yeah. no respect for human life. I agree. I, I, 
at all. Don't, I don't think he valued it particularly highly. I think he thought that bad things happen. And of course, he developed something called realpolitik. Now, that's not a new idea. That that came about in the, the 19th century through Otto van Bismarck, his hero. Um, and realpolitik basically means, for those of you who, who are unaware, that you have to be realistic. Don't have moral goals. Don't expect that human nature is essentially dark, so you do what suits you. Uh, and and he would go on and prove that. Now, Kissinger was a very complex man. He became a bit of a celebrity, became a bit of a darling of of Washington because through the day he would be in with Nixon plotting and and the two of them controlled foreign policy. They cut out the Secretary of State. They ran it themselves, very secret, very dark channels. Until he became Secretary of State, yes. Until, of course, he became Secretary of State. Well, I think uh, Kissinger was Nixon's, uh, you call him the the National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor. So basically, you run the National Security Council, and of course, he had Alexander Haig, another name that's going to come up here in a little Hmm. bit. Richard Allen, another name that's going to come up here in a little bit. But, you know, for, for the first six years of Nixon's presidency, that was his job. And, and it um, because the, the secretary of state job is a more forward facing, uh, you know, political position, whereas this yes. is something that just happens in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Kissinger, like, like David was saying, you know, he spends all day at the White House and in these meeting rooms at the Pentagon and dealing with the Rand Corporation <laughs> that we're about to get to also. Um and then at night he would go out, you know, and, and socialize or call journalists on the phone. I mean, it was just constantly a sieve of information, but it was only the information that the White House wanted to leave. You know, well, yeah, well, he wanted to leak. It was the pro yes, Henry yes, information. Yes, he yes. wanted to make sure there is a suspicion that the taping system was primarily put in because of Henry Kissinger, who didn't yeah. know, incidentally, that he was being taped. He, the only people who knew they were being taped were Alexander Butterfield, who was an assistant to Nixon, who uh, Stephen Bull, yeah, who was another <laughs> assistant, and yeah. uh, Holderman. The rest, yep. including Ehrlichman and Kissinger and Mrs. Nixon, didn't know they were being recorded. And there is a suspicion that it, it was because he thought that Kissinger would try to take credit for his achievements, which he did. And they have this complex relationship, the pair of them, that they could achieve some brilliant things together, but the tapes make clear that Kissinger would play to Nixon's worst instincts, that he would be, you know, he he was sycophantic, he he was aggressive. And Haldeman has actually said in his diary, we found it funny that Henry would be the biggest hawk in the room and then at night go out with left-wing people would be very well it's not me you know i'd have a suit of vietnam tomorrow and right. then he'd come into the office and say let's bomb the shit out of cambodia <laughs> so uh I, I, complex people both egomaniacs both insecure and they sort of needed each other well now nixon would i mean he actually would call him my jew boy you know, which is yes. incredibly yeah. inc- racist. Well, okay, and you hear about, you get say. my Jew boy on the phone. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and it was to demean him deliberately. And of course, yeah. Kissinger would put up with that, but then would go out and badmouth Nixon round town. Um, famously called him a maniac um, and said that he was keeping the lid on on policy. So you've got these these different people in this this office and the Pentagon Papers, as Shane says, nineteen seventy one. When the story breaks, and it breaks as a news story, kind of explain what it is. Former Secretary of uh, Defence Robert McNamara 
who had been there through the who was Kennedy's guy and had been there through the escalation of Vietnam. He sort of has a wee bit of a Damascene conversion, doesn't he, Shane? Throughout his time, where he yeah. starts off incredibly hawkish, but then becomes what the hell are we doing here? But, but uh, well, again, you know, just like with Kissinger, it was the outward facing. Yeah, I, I, privately, you know, I mean, we'll get to Daniel Ellsberg himself. I mean, McNamara famously has this conversation on a plane back from Saigon with him about how all this shit is falling apart, and there's no possible way that we can win this. And this is in 1966. Mm-hmm. And the second McNamara gets off the plane, he gets in front of cameras and stands there. <laughs> nah, we're, we, we, we've still got this. We've got a great plan coming out. And, and you can see <laughs> Ellsberg standing behind him you know, in, in the news footage of this going, what in the fuck is this guy talking about? Like, and and Ellsberg had made that journey too. Um, oh, Ellsberg yeah. had started out pro-war. What Very McNamara so. does Very is he commissions so. this study to be done by the, the Defence Department. Uh, and it's a huge study that traces not only where they are in Vietnam, but how they got there. And this yep. goes all the way back to the formation of North and South Vietnam. Now, we don't have time to go into what happened. But basically, um, after World War II, Ho Chi Minh, the, the famous leader of the, the Communist Party there, who'd been a, a, a communist since the 1920s, um, but it worked with the Americans to get rid of the Japanese because over and above being a communist, this is something that Americans never grasped with them. He was a nationalist. It yep. was about independence. But it, it, the French, who had French Indochina, as they called Vietnam, then fight this war to try and preserve their colonial status. America wasn't keen on letting France go back in. This was Britain. Britain kind of said, oh, you need to let them, you know. They feel a bit bad about how that war went, you know, with the whole collapse in 1914, and being freed <laughs> by us. Um, uh, and basically to mollify them, you know yeah. the, the the Americans who who are anti-imperialism. I do have to say that, but I don't think FDR would have done it. I think Truman had other things to worry about. I think FDR was hugely anti-imperial. So the French fight a war, which they can't win. <laughs> Echoes. Yeah. Um, and in 1954, there's a conference where they split. They, they partition it. North Vietnam, which is communist. South Vietnam, which is free. If, if this sounds familiar, it's uh, because we'd just done it in Korea one year before. <laughs> exactly, right. Um, I, as Sir Humphrey Appleby and yes, Prime Minister said, well, that's our policy. We always partition a country we've been in. And the Prime Minister <laughs> says, why? He said, because then they're too busy fighting each other to bother about fighting us. Um, the, the people who've stripped all the stuff out of the country, you know, they could just leave with it. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Um, war breaks out. Now, the American ally was South Vietnam, who unfortunately were hideously corrupt yeah. and uh, very venal. And this, this document traces the fact that Kennedy lied all the way through what he was saying publicly and what he was saying privately. Johnson lied and lied and lied and lied. And it, it, it basically comes out that the entire war is built on a lie that Americans have been fed this bullshit. They're being told, as Shane just mentioned, they can win this war, and they can't. And this is leaked by a chap named Daniel Ellsberg, um, who was working for the Rand Corporation, but a former Marine, former State Department official. Oh, and... He was, he was uh, what was he, uh, McNaughton? So uh, one of McNamara's deputies, he was his assistant for a couple yeah, of years. He, within he the was... State Department, you know, so. Now, he leaks this um, to yeah. the New York Times, who print it. And then there becomes this famous standoff 
between the newspapers. Uh, and as a journalist, Shane, I'm sure this is something that oh yeah you, you get taught <laughs> this, uh, this, journalism this 101. Sacrosanct fucking material, everything around this. Yes, I'll leave this bit to you then. This is well, your area. So, so we yeah, as David said. The, uh, by the way, do you know why it's called the Rand Corporation? No, I never knew this till like two years ago. Uh, it's it's R and D. It's research and always, development. Yeah, I always thought it had something to do with South Africa. You know the currency. No. Oh, I, I, well, you know, we're thinking like Rand. I had no idea, but yeah, it's it's R and D Corporation, the Rand R and D McNally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. There you go. I've learned go. something today as well. I know. God. No. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, Ellsberg, who's been working on this, decides in uh, 1969 after they get this project done. And again, you know, like David was saying, th- this is a paper that covers from 1945 to 1967, and Ellsberg comes to this realization that, you know, th- this isn't a civil war. To start, this is the U.S. supporting a French uh, reconquest or re—I uh, don't know—imperialization of this area. Mm-hmm. So he decides to leak this paper and, and uh, gives it to uh, Neil Sheehan of the New York Times, who he'd worked with in uh, Saigon during the war. Um, you know, the, the Sheehan had been over there covering it, so obviously he, he had this relationship with him. He basically calls him up and says, "Hey, I've got seven thousand pages." Let's say uh, the war has been a lie the whole time. Do you want it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the New York Times, obviously, they get it. Now, they, they've got to spend all this time photocopying it, which uh, uh, Ellsberg had done in the first place with a, with a buddy of his, Anthony Russo. It took him about three months to photocopy this whole thing because, you know, back then, a Xerox machine, you, you did it one page at a time. <laughs> yeah. and it took about 20 seconds a page. And uh, so, no, the, the, the Times finally gets a hold of this and does decide to publish it. But, of course, there are a lot of... Um, legal ramifications that they have to think about and uh so they they do the initial uh report on june 13th of uh, 1971 a story comes out front page story of the new york times of course vietnam archive pentagon study traces three decades of growing u.s involvement right and uh again nixon's immediate reaction is well this will fuck the democrats but obviously oh of course he is of course he is obviously it doesn't help him in 72 Okay. Nothing else of interest in the world? Yes, sir. Very significant, this uh, goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that. I see. I didn't read the story, but uh, you mean that that was leaked out of the Pentagon? This is a devastating uh, security breach of of the greatest magnitude of anything I've well, seen. Well, what uh, what's being done about it then? I mean, I didn't... Uh, well, I did we know this was coming out? No, we did not, sir. Uh, yeah, now, I, I just start right at the top and fire some people. I mean, whoever, whatever department it came out of, I'd fire the top guy. But it's it's something that it's a mixed bag. It's a, it's a tough attack on Kennedy. Uh, it shows that the genesis of the war uh, really occurred in yeah. 61. Yeah, that's Clifford. Uh, I see. And uh, it's brutal on President Johnson. They're going to end up in a massive gut fight in the Democratic Party on this thing. Are they? Um, but then you get the Kissinger and Haldeman and everybody involvement in that, you know, the, the, this is this is the most tra- – we can't have newspapers out here printing secret government information. We've got to fucking stop this shit now. Yeah. Kissinger and, uh, Ch- goes to him and says, you're a weakling, Mr. President, if you yeah. let this happen. The Soviets will be laughing at you, playing to his worst instincts. Hello. It's Mr. Ehrlichman calling you, sir. Yeah. Okay. Hello. Mr. Yeah. Mr. President, the Attorney General's called a couple times about these New York Times stories. 
And he's advised by his people that unless he puts the Times on notice, yeah. uh, he's probably going to waive any right of prosecution against the newspaper. And he is calling now to see if you would approve his uh, putting them on notice before their first edition for tomorrow comes out. Hmm. I realize there are negatives to this in terms of the vote on the Hill. You mean to prosecute the Times? Right. Hell, I wouldn't prosecute the Times. My view is to prosecute the goddamn pricks that gave it to him. Yeah, if you can find out who that is. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, could the Times be prosecuted? Uh, apparently so. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, could he wait one more day? They have, they have one more day after that. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So, of course, uh, now we get Chuck Colson, another, uh, another piece of shit in the, uh, in the Nixon White House. Uh, Nixon's hatchet man, as everybody called him, uh, the, the head of uh, counsel, legal counsel in the White House. So they, they have to plan that they're going to sue the New York Times to cease publishing this, right? And, and they, they do get an injunction later that week um, that, uh, you know, we're going to stop doing this shit. Um, and the only problem is, of course, that the injunction is only against the New York Times. Hmm. So uh, Ellsberg goes about leaking this information to a bunch of other newspapers. The, the, the next one's the Washington Post. Uh, which the movie The Post is all about this whole yes. situation there. So if you wish to go watch that, by all means. Uh, and Colson gets an injunction against them. So then they go to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and gets an injunction against them. And then the <laughs> LA Times, it gets an It ends up like the Christian Science Monitor end up printing parts of this. Right. And more than, well, again, I, you know, you hear it in the quote here at the beginning of the show uh, from Nixon himself. The, the problem is not... That, that these things happen. The problem is when you try to cover it up and in their effort to, you know, stop the publication and stop newspapers from, from putting this information out there in the public, they make it an even bigger story than it already was because now you have the white house in the Supreme court fighting against the, the rights of, of newspapers under the first amendment, the publishers so, you know, it's right there in the first one that, that Which can't do anything to stop. The first. To- oh Yeah. When it gets yeah, to the they, Supreme Court, they lose um, yep. uh, unanimously, I believe. And uh, this, I think it was six three, if I remember. Was right. it six three? Yeah. No, I, yeah, I'm thinking of the tapes. Um, yeah. But there's a difference actually between America and the UK. And and folks, I hate to break this to you, but we we'd never hear about it because there's a thing in Britain called the D notice, yeah, which comes from uh, MI5, and if you get slapped with that, you can't you cannot publish. You, and it's yeah. that simple. End of story. It's the end of the book. They will shut your newspaper down if you, you print it. This is when the men in grey suits come and visit you at night <laughs> and your, your car runs off a road, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, we don't have that same freedom. It's just an automatic normal. But as Shane said, it makes it into a story. But more importantly, it makes it into Nixon's story when it wasn't yeah. initially about him. It was about the Democrats and what they'd well, done it, wrong. It, it's ironic too because you know all these papers obviously have been marked top secret, but that was to keep it undercover and out of the hands of Lyndon Johnson while they were working on it. Mm. And of course, you know it takes Nixon's overhandedness again and something that has nothing to do with him, at least on paper, uh, to to bring this thing out into the light. And we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to introduce you to the finest plumbing outfit Washington D.C. has ever. <laughs> 
So this is all very interesting, the listener might say, but what, what has that got to do with Watergate? Well, there is a concern about leaks uh, that are coming out. The, the fact that these, and these are national secrets, incidentally, these are state secrets. The fact that they can be leaked, the concern is then, well, anything can be leaked. Yes. And Nixon wants the FBI, who had done things like this for well, basically every president since their inception, uh, G. Edgar Hoover, very powerful, and Nixon wants the FBI to do it, but the FBI won't because Nick, uh, basically by this stage of his career, Hoover, who has passed the mandatory age of retirement, but as Martha Mitchell famously said, if you've seen one FBI director, you've seen them all because he was literally <laughs> the only one who had who had ever been the. Uh, he is worried that if there's any taint, any scandal, he recognised that times had changed. Yep. And he thinks if there's any scandal, they're going to use that to get me out. So he won't do it. He will not. Well, I, 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 who was there? Was one Defense Department official that Nixon actually offered the FBI director job during the middle of all this? Yeah, I can't yeah. remember who. I forget who it was. But um, basically, if you can shut this fucking thing down, I will get rid of. Hoover I'll get rid of Hoover and give if you, you can... his job. I'll give you his job. And the guy and, goes, fuck no. <laughs> no. I'm not fucking touching that. That that wasn't me. But that, exactly. So Nixon, who is the president? And again, we do have to have the caveat that they are at war. Right? Yeah. America is at war. Yeah. And he comes from the generation that thinks when you're at war, you do suspend civil liberties, like we did in you know, 19, 1941 to 1945, that basically the war subsumes everything. But again, yep. it's different times. It's not a good war. The way that World War II had a just cause, it's not that. And it doesn't apply. So he gets frustrated. I'm the fucking president. Why can I not order people to go and do all this? I, I should have a dark arts area. He, he assumed he would get one as the president. He assumed he'd have a team and he doesn't. So he decides, well, we'll create our own. Yep. And between Colson and Haldeman, they give list names and we get David Young, E. Howard Hunt, and the craziest motherfucker ever to set foot in the White House, G. Gordon Liddy, who oh, uh, become the, uh, the, the White House Special, Invas- <laughs> Special Investigations Unit. Uh, they, they, get, they get the the White House plumber's name. I, th- I think it was Young. He went home for Thanksgiving. Yes, and, it was. He's yeah, grandma. his grandmother's talking to him. Like, so what do you do? And he's, oh, you know, I... I'm uh, I'm in charge. I help the president stop leaks. Oh, you're a plumber then. Very so. proudly. Oh, you're a plumber. And uh, <laughs> it start- now to give you an indication of what um, G. Gordon Liddy is like. Uh, he actually had a different name for it. The plumbers was the one that stuck. His name was Odessa. Yeah. Um, which was not named after the area of Russia, but rather was an acronym for an SS group that were rumoured to be plotting to carry on guerrilla warfare after the end of the war. Yeah. Um, he was a Nazi. There's no getting away from it. He was a Nazi to the point oh, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> where uh, Gordon Strawn and British people will find this funny because this chap's name, he was a White House assistant. His name is Gordon Strachan. But in that softening <laughs> of... of uh, of European pronunciations that you see so often in America. Um, he becomes Gordon Strawn. But uh, he actually describes me, he says, he's a Hitler, but he's our Hitler. Um, he very much admired Hitler. Now, G. Gordon Liddy is a qualified lawyer, which is how he kind of gets his, his job. He worked yep. for the FBI, um, was considered a little bit, uh, well, I can't think of a better word. He was considered a little bit nuts. 
yeah. and there's a lot of reason to believe this way. He was obsessed with being a tough guy. He was obsessed with we're at war and the the president need these needs these jobs done. Uh, and he comes in uh, full of ideas, full of plans about what they can do, and, and he's been bothering them for a while now. Uh, suggesting that he could get involved. And he ends up at the the president's re-election campaign, which is the unfortunately named <laughs> Committee to Re-elect the President, or... Creep. Creep. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the reasons they went for that, incidentally, and a Nixon 72 slogan, now more than ever, neither mention the name of the president. And the reason for that is the polling found that Americans reacted badly to the idea of voting for Richard Nixon, but they kind of accepted that they needed them (laughs) so it was sort of like i don't want to vote for him i don't don't remind me that it's richard nixon and i'll and then i'll vote for him so that's how you get this name so he ends up working there uh as their counsel uh, because he has a qualified lawyer e howard hunt um now this guy's background 20 years in the cia and a novelist who wrote pulp um, yes. spy novels under they could, they could get really published but uh yeah. um <laughs> and he had been 20 years in the cia he'd been involved in the overthrow of a left-wing government in guatemala oh, uh, yeah. which is probably the high point of his career so yeah, because pretty, pretty of, much any, any latin american coup between 1949 and that was you yeah that was yeah that, that was you was yeah no it was <laughs> uh, no no, no it was us it was us, and it yeah. was E. Howard Hunt that was yeah. one of the main guys. Uh, yeah, that. I mean, I, I would go a wee bit far. I'd go into into the seventies as well as Chile might yeah. Uh, yeah. might testify. But yeah, yeah uh, Nicaragua in the eighties. Actually, Shane, I'm not sure you've stopped us yet. No, but, we don't. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Venezuela currently. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, he was involved in that, and he then is selected for the Bay of Pigs, which is quite possibly the most public and spectacular U.S. foreign policy failure of all time. Yeah, that's, um, that's a big old fuck-up right there. <laughs> they, they, this is a plan hatched um, under Eisenhower, although he had the sense not to put it in practice. Kennedy, who's new, young, and experienced, feels under pressure to show he's a tough guy. He orders it. And the plan is that Cuban exiles in uh, Miami, if any of you have seen Scarface, you'll know the type of community I'm referring to. <laughs> uh they will, uh, I think about 1,500 of them, not American soldiers, but about 1,500 Cuban exiles. So it can't be considered that America are invading Cuba. They will, with American assistance, with CIA assistance, they will launch an attack on Cuba. But what will happen is, because 1,500 can't take a country, but the, the, the peasantry will rise up and they'll overthrow Fidel Castro. Well, it goes to shit almost immediately. The <laughs> 1,500 either get captured or slaughtered, and it's a fucking disaster. Kennedy, to be fair to him, comes out publicly and says, I take full responsibility for this, and kind of gets away with it because he does that, um, because he, he, he has the gumption to do that. But, again, that's a whole other show. That then well, does uh, lead there, there, to the there is a great in Vietnam. Here. There's a really good point in here, too, because how disliked the CIA was amongst uh, the classic defense uh, people that uh, part part of the Bay of Pigs invasion was uh, supposed to be air support. And, uh, <laughs> no, well, C- 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 Curtis LeMay, he famously said he couldn't keep track of the time zones. And that's why the planes like 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. and, and, and Khrushchev battles at the, the famous summit. He battles Kennedy about this because he oh, yeah. basically thinks, look, you either, you, you know, you shouldn't have done it, but once you had done it, you had to then invade afterwards. Yeah. You, you couldn't let, it, ha- it couldn't go the way that there was no option for it to go that way. You either had to do it, not do it, which was the, the right option, or if you did do it, you should have then went all guns blazing and, and the fact Kennedy had done neither. Um, and that does lead to, to Kennedy's toughness in inverted commas on Vietnam. So yeah. the Bay of Pigs is, is Howard Hunt's you know, thing. So he kind of doesn't get many pig jobs in the CIA afterwards <laughs> and he eventually leaves. But he, he has a presence and he has a friend named Charles Coulson. Yes. They're the president. They're the co-presidents of Brown University. Their alma maters. Uh, they're the co-presidents of their alumni uh, organization. Yep. So you know he's telling his stories, and you can imagine what they're like. And remember, this guy's an author, right? He can spin a yarn. Um, he. I read a couple of his books just as you know, sort of to see what they're like. And they're all right. You know, they're not awful. If you pick one up and expect it to be this embarrassing, it's not. It's a perfectly serviceable, I'd call it an airport paperback, Shane. You know, it's a (laughs) perfectly decent spy story. Um, So he can tell a story and he tells Coulson. And Coulson thinks that this is basically James Bond, um, this guy. So he taps him to come work for and initially to be fair to Hunt he says no I'm retired for the CIA uh, I'm working for this PR firm who were a front for the CIA but still <laughs> um, uh, but then he begins to kind of see the demonstrations and he thinks America's going to shit so he yeah. says no this is something so you've got now all these this... fucking hippies need to learn a goddamn lesson a hundred percent and he then teams up with this chap uh, G Gordon Liddy um, to, to give you an example of what Liddy's like, when Liddy, he was trying to recruit someone to the plumbers, a lady who would be used as um, sexual bait, I suppose yep. is the, the, the word. Yep. And to, to prove his loyalty to his team, he said uh, she was lighting a cigarette and he said, hold your lighter out, classic old Zippo. And she holds up the flame and he put his hand over it and until his, his flesh turned black. With it. Yeah. And she's like, what are you doing? He says, I'll suffer for you. And of course, this puts her off. And she's like, no fucking way am I working with this maniac, <laughs> right? There's a famous time he's in the he's in the office of Creep and Jeb Magruder, the assistant uh, who was co-running it with John Mitchell, the former Attorney General, uh, they're complaining about a columnist called Jack Anderson. And he says, oh, I really wish we could do something about Jack Anderson. And well, he goes, Liddy, All right. <laughs> okay. He gets up and he starts walking out and Magruder was like, did I just tell him to go kill him? (laughs) He says, I think I've told him to, and so he sends his assistant to to get him, and he said, well, Gordon, where are you going? He said, he just told me to kill Jack Anderson. I am going to kill Jack Anderson. (laughs) Uh, And they say, no, we didn't mean that. And he goes, well, be careful what you say around me, because if you give me an instruction like that, I'll I'll do it. Uh, And these two get together, and they decide that, you know, the president has kind of, sort of told them there's no bit of paper. Have, no. have we all seen Clear and Present Danger, the Harrison Ford movie? There's no bit of paper, but it's come from the president. It's gone to hold them, and it's then gone to Colson. Colson then passes it on. Now, there are other scandals. There's one I want to mention about why this kind of team was put in place. Um, uh, international 
telecom and telecommunications, IT and T. I believe they're now AT and T. Shane, am I correct? American. Oh uh, yeah, part yeah. Yeah. Um, now this company in 1970 are enormous. Yes. Right. Huge, and I mean huge, massive conglomerate. But they are buying up loads and loads and loads of businesses. Now, Americans instinctively, I think it's fair to say, have a fear of monopolies. We saw it with Microsoft. Um, so I'm trying to, well, no, IT and T is still its own corporate. It's uh, AT and T is a wholly separate thing. But yes, right. anyway, sorry. Uh, well, <laughs> so they they uh, they're buying it, and Americans don't like huge corporations. Ever no. since Teddy Roosevelt broke up. Because it's bad for competition. They're See, I, I, th- I think that's where we get mixed up because AT&T was broken up. That's yeah, why it's that's, always that's easy right, to yeah. confuse the two. So um, international te- and uh, a lawyer in the Justice Department says, look, we need to go after them because they are buying up too many companies and it's bad for competition. We've got proof that it's bad for competition in those industries. Yeah. Uh, we need to go and do something about this. So. <laughs> uh, yeah this, this is so great right so all of a sudden this gets shut down from the head of the justice department john mitchell nixon's former law partner his most trusted ally and he said don't go any further on this we've settled with them and the guy who's been running the whole case says how can you settle with them if i didn't know about it and then it comes out mysteriously that it&t have given $500,000 to the Republican Party to fund their uh, well, presidential... They, they, they wanted the, the convention in San Diego. Convention, yeah. So, yeah, um, so they, they, they give all this money, but somehow only 100000 of it shows up, uh, mm-hmm, you know, yes. and publicly... This, the, the, the documents that you have to show all this kind of money on. Yeah, 250000 yeah. of it gets put into political action committees who've suddenly just formed overnight and they're called things like um, committees for sensible agricultural policy and I mean it's just bullshit it's just bullshit to avoid the law but they pay off the the Nixon administration and this becomes a bit of a scandal it goes to Senator Ted Kennedy he tries to push it but they just can't quite get enough evidence to, to nail them, and he's damaged by Chappaquiddick at this point. Yeah. Who also Hunt and Liddy are working on bringing who everything are down, out. Yes, who are, are down there at that? So uh, it doesn't quite come out. Another scandal that's going on, and this you know, this is a belter. Um, they were selling ambassadorships. Yep. You you know, and and famously, um, in comes a large donator. He donated over a hundred thousand pounds to the Nixon campaign, but he was very upset because he'd been given in the first term Trinidad and Tobago. So he goes and sees uh, the personal lawyer Herb Kambach of Richard Nixon. He says, "Look, I want a European ambassadorship," and they're like. Oh, that's three hundred grand. That's a, that's a big step, yeah. That's a big, and he pays the three hundred thousand, and he ends up getting the ambassadorship of Spain. Yep. Now, I, I can't begin to say how illegal this is. Right? I mean, this this is incredibly illegal, and all this is going on, and it shows you now why then were the Nixon. The reason that we're mentioning this, folks, why then were the Nixon administration so paranoid because they had secrets. Yes, all they all have, over the goddamn place. Well, I love to because IT and T is not even done after that bullshit because they're involved in the coup in Chile. Yes, I mean, they're, they are. They, they're the the mechanism by which the they finance for, for the coup gets. Yeah, mm-hmm. everything they, they goes pay, through there. They pay for the junta 
to yeah. take over because it, they threat uh, the the left wing were going to nationalise their business interests there. Yep. So the white this is a White House that has secrets, yep. and they're desperate to protect them. Well, so they uh, built this team called the Plumbers, whose job will be. Um, first of all, to plug well, leaks. The, 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 their very first job is to break into the uh, psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, and they, again, they, <laughs> straight on the attack, right? They yeah. think, right, we, we need to discuss. Now, uh, one of the reasons that I find this interesting is it was Kissinger who pushed and pushed and pushed that something be done about this. It was yeah. Kissinger who, who got it. Nixon would have left it alone, so would hold him in. They, they, they weren't bothered because it was a Democrat problem. But well, Kissinger why was not is, done killing people in Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, why that's... is Kissinger so determined to do it? And partly it's because Ellsberg had worked in his team. He'd been raving about him. And yeah. secondly, it's because of the Chenault affair that we mentioned last week. Yeah. That they're paranoid that it will come out that basically the president and uh, the, the now president before he was president when he was a private citizen interfered in the running of the government, which is incredibly illegal. I mean, it's, it's even worse than the, <laughs> the the selling of ambassadorships. So you've got this this mess. You've got this stew. You've got really this cauldron, if you like, that's got a lid on it, but it's boiling over and they want to just clamp down on it. But unfortunately, the people they've hired to do this are nutcases. Yeah. And, and, and even worse, incompetent nutcases. Yeah. So they, they, they decide, and I've never really saw the logic in this one, Shane. They decide that to try and, they'll, they'll break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to try and find his notes that will hopefully have some, uh, <laughs> that will I, hopefully yeah. have some, yeah, like scandal about yeah. Ellsberg they can put in the press. Yeah, it, it, well, and the thing, they, they, they break in, you know, hey, where, where, where do we know about breaking in and busting open filing? Ca- oh, wait, Watergate. So this unsuccessful operation uh, that they break into the Feeling's office, and he comes in the next day, they've left the files and everything on the floor after they yeah, it was supposed the to. It was supposed this, to be what they call a black bag job, which is quietly yes. go in, go out. Nobody knows you've been there. But Except of course, they he, took a fucking crowbar to the to, to, to the cabinet. cabinet. These idiots, and then they decided we better make it look like a, a junkies broke in looking for drugs, yeah. um, and they, they smashed the place up. One of my very favourite things in the whole of this story is there actually is a written link to this. Yeah, that it has been written down. And put to John Ehrlichman, who puts his initial on it to approve it, and then thinks, oh, I better. And he writes, if done under your assurance that it will not be traceable. You're writing it fucking down! <laughs> How, you know, of course it's going to be traceable if that's what you're doing. This is a phone call matter. Um yeah. Well, I, I, I think Ehrlichman ends up, you know, Nixon's asking about progress on this sometime in the seven, I don't know, it's late, late 71, September, October of 71. And uh, Ehrlichman, one of the tapes, he goes, uh, we've had one little operation that's been aborted out in Los Angeles. I think it's better you don't know about it. Mm. And, and now that's, this is incredibly kind of on the tapes, but... Uh, they- they yeah. have breached the civil rights of an American citizen, as Shane mentioned earlier. Um, and it just shows you that Watergate wasn't a one-off. It was a pattern. This is what they've done. But they, they kind of get away with it. Um, although a time sort bomb of. comes because uh, Liddy, they take photographs of the office and Liddy goes to the CIA to process them. And the CIA, of course, process them, give them back and keep a copy for themselves in their safe just to protect themselves if they ever need it, which they will in a couple of years' time. Yeah. But they then 
the next target is going to be the Watergate. We'll talk about the actual burglary next week. But um, I think it is just really interesting that straight away, Nixon, and and there's another example, straight away he goes to illegal. There's no journey. It's straight there. You know, there's no discussion about whether they should do this. It's just, it's straight. There's an understanding, an implicit understanding. And that's why when Nixon says, which he did till his death, I didn't order the Watergate break-in. Not directly you didn't, but you created the culture. Yeah. They are concerned that there's a report similar to the Pentagon Papers being held by a think tank called the Brookings Institute. Uh, A a right-wing think tank, by the way. A right-wing, yeah. Yeah, one of theirs. But but, but this goes to the point where... Nixon and Haldeman and, and and all these guys, they were Republicans because they were Protestants, and that's what you did, right? Mm-hmm. And you needed a vehicle by which to, to, to carry your political aspirations, and the Republican Party was that. Mm-hmm. They were not classic Republicans. They were not part of the GOP. They, they weren't in there with Barry Goldwater and all these other guys that, that were really the flag bearers for the conservative movement. So, yeah, they target the Brookings Institution because they think they have this file on uh, Lyndon Johnson that that can just completely blow apart everything in the Pentagon Papers and then hide them or, you know, get them off the hook on this shit. And so they order another break in there, which th- th- this is one of the ones, you know, this is a belter. Well, as David said, <laughs> Haldeman would often step in when Nixon came up with a really, really, really dumb idea. And this was one of them. Because, you know, we can, oh, yeah, no, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll 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 we'll, do, we'll get we'll do that. We'll, no. No, no, no. <laughs> no, uh, now, the ideas that are kicking about for this. So Nixon, he's on the tapes. He says, uh, I want this I, I want this done. Go in yeah, there. I want you I get want in there done. and get it. And, yeah. I want you to go in and get it. They, you know, uh, because they're concerned that there's stuff about the Chinault. They don't know this, but they think there might be stuff about the Chinault affair in it. Yeah. And he says, famously, I don't care if it's done on a thievery basis. Which is the yep. name of our electronic band, if we ever form one, Shane. Right? <laughs> Thievery basis. Uh, and he, he won't let it go. You know, as, as Shane mentioned there, there are ideals that he'll say, but every day is like, of, of what we've done about the Brookings. So they come up with this plan. It's <laughs> <is> a cracker. <laughs> I, can't, I honestly, to, to, I mean, this is serious shit. You know, this brings in a president, but holy Christ, wait till you hear this. They decide they're going to firebomb it. And then in the confusion, <laughs> they'll know that they're going to start a fire at this building. So they'll buy a fire engine <laughs> and they'll arrive first because they'll know it's going to be on fire before the yeah. real fire brigade. And they'll run in and in the confusion, they'll burgle. Um, and it, this it, gets put. If this sounds familiar to all of you, this is actually the plot to the first Mission Impossible film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what they're doing. And, 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 and now, of course, you know that. And what I like about it is this plan is put to John Mitchell, uh, the Attorney General, by the way, the highest law officer in America, <laughs> and he says no, but not because it's about, but because of the cost. He's not going to yeah. spring for a fire engine. Um, <laughs> and John Dean, he's very concerned. He goes and sees Ehrlichman. He says they're going to fucking firebomb the. He's the the, the President's <laughs> Council. They're going to firebomb this place. It's a daft idea. And Ehrlichman doesn't go. Oh my God! He goes right. Okay, picks up the phone. Phones Howard Hunt and said, uh, or Chuck Colson, and said, "Don't do that." And puts the phone down. But again, it's this culture. It's not. Oh my God! We're going to commit an illegal act. It's you don't think it's a good idea, right? We won't do this one. Then 
but we we, we might circle back to it in the, in the future. Um, and, and these plans are, are taking place. One detail that I do think is important to mention, and we will come to this as we do the burglary next week, is that Howard Hunt was uh, Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy were having a whale of a time. Oh, they yeah. were flying first class. They were staying yep. in the best hotels. They were eating steak and uh, lobster <laughs> for dinner. They were drinking Cutty Sark champagne, uh, Cutty Sark whiskey, and and the best champagne. They're having a great time on, on this. He decides to get together a plan, Operation Gemstone. And Gordon Liddy turns up at the Attorney General's office, the the the, the head of law enforcement <laughs> in, in a White House that ran on a law and order platform. I, I think <laughs> this is something that can never be understated with the Nixon. Part of their whole platform was law and order, law and order, law and order, and here they are continually doing crime the entire time they're in the White House. Not not. not not only all these burglaries and and well, what with Ellsberg, what, what wasn't it Liddy and uh, Liddy and Hunt's plan to uh, drug him with LSD and make him like an incoherent babbling mess? Yeah, uh, discredit him. You know, and, and this is something again. LSD Liddy, Liddy would have done this, right? Oh yeah, he would. But all the way, oh, up he would have tried to. He would have fucked oh, yeah. it up. But all the way up to again treason in the build up to the nineteen sixty eight election. These guys broke. Every fucking law possible. Yeah, every big law. You know, yes. I mean, um, they didn't quite get to murder, but I've no doubt at one point they would have tried it. Um, so oh, well, he goes, I mean, that, killing Ellsberg was also an option. Uh, yeah. Again, he, I mean, Liddy was going to go kill Jack Anderson. There's other stories about him just throwing people, wanting to throw people out of a window, and mm. he would have. So, yes. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've zero doubt about it. So um, he goes in. Gordon Liddy, and he's a charts professionally prepared by the CIA in which he lists these plans. He's trying to get funding. Now, the funding is going to come from the campaign to re-elect the president. It's not going to be state money, but it's going to be money that's donated for the campaign to re-elect the president. Their justification in their minds for this is, well, we're going to do some dirty tricks. And, and this does go on in politics. Don't don't oh, get yeah. me wrong. You know, like you send pizzas to the the offices, like a, a hundred pizzas, or you change street signs so that people don't get to the rally. It does happen, but it's usually penny ante stuff. The shit he's planning. He wants a budget of a million dollars, right? <laughs> Shitload of money, and he goes in, and his plans include some of my favourites in this one at the Democratic convention. He wants to buy a houseboat, which he will park in a river near the Democratic Convention, and he will hire prostitutes who will seduce Democratic officials at this houseboat, Chinese houseboat. And I don't know why the Chinese bit was important, but he he always mentioned that, Chinese houseboat. And they would then get info from them, which they would be able to use. Now, that is, in any... Any idea that's fucking mental, right? I mean, it, it, it is kind of funny that, that he ends up being part of this in the uh, well, in the the um, Reagan White House and in the the campaign of George H. W. Bush because this is pretty much what they do to Gary Hart in uh, nineteen eighty eight is get a picture of him on boat with a uh, with a model slash hooker, and <laughs> uh, you know this, this is how they submarine the candidacy of Gary Hart, uh, you know, fifteen years later. So but they would have fashioned. They do this plan. I mean, yeah. they, they were, just don't they do it as part good. of 
yeah. yeah, they were at least competent. But yeah. um, and he's got uh, you know crazy ideas about buying helicopters that were used to spy. He's just gonna and, kidnap fucking you know, shit ton of people. Kidnap democratic officials and, yeah, and, and take, and take them to protesters. Mexico. Something. Yeah, and and take them to Mexico. And next, uh, and and to be fair to Mitchell, right, he was a very taciturn guy, uh, and he's kind of chuckling throughout it. But at the end, he doesn't say no. He tells a, a heartbroken Liddy, uh, that's not really the idea that we had in mind. We wanted, you know, some campaign dirty tricks. Go away and think about a more reasonable, uh, a more reasonable plan. We don't yep. want all this fancy stuff. And oh, I, I love to. We, we have all the notes of this uh, uh, this first meeting because John Dean is is talking about on the uh, the cancer on the presidency conversation. Uh, really lays out all the information that, that in this meeting again took place at the attorney general's office you know during the work day that mm. because dean was in the room and and says this on the recording device that nixon uses to record himself we know that this meeting took place and the details and everything that was talked yeah. about now the the other thing about this is i i genuinely do believe that that john mitchell and we'll come to him uh, in later episodes and his wife martha I, de- I genuinely believe he just thought, this guy's a, a nutter, and I'll just fob him off, basically. But what he has done, what they have all done in that room, is conspiracy. It, yeah. it, you know, it is illegal, because they're discussing illegal acts that they're going to undertake, uh, and you've, you've broken the law immediately there. Um, but he is distracted by various things, and Liddy just won't let go, and he's bugging people at Creep, and he's bugging Charles Coulson. And eventually, Charles Coulson phones John Mitchell and says, look, could you please just get off your ass and do something about this? Now, there's a, a famous meeting between Mitchell, uh, his sort of assistant friend, Fred LaRue, um, wasn't he the luckiest guy to hang about? He shot and killed his father in a hunting accident. Yeah. Fred LaRue, quite a colourful guy, very rich, Texas millionaire. Um, and Jeb Magruder. Now, Jeb Magruder, who I believe became a minister after, I think he found God when he was in prison, <laughs> but described by the prosecutors as the most amoral man in Watergate. Now that's up against some pretty fierce fucking competition, yeah. folks. No, but Magruder was really, yeah. Uh, I, I think this consumed him. Um, yeah, I think you know, somebody, th- 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 this became everything in his life. For somebody you know, described him as ambition without portfolio, and that yeah. he wanted to be somebody, but he wasn't that bothered about what he became, just so long as it was something. Yeah. And there's some debate about who said what at this meeting. It, it takes place at Key Biscayne. The presidential retreat in Florida. Uh, Bibi Rebozo's house. Bibi Rebozo's house, yeah. <laughs> because the president would take his staff down there. But then, even better, I love this. He would go down there to this house, Bibi Rebozo's massive house, his friend, and he'd put his staff there. Then he would fuck off to his friend Bob Aplanap's private <laughs> island. <laughs> so, to be completely alone, even from his staff and family. And uh, there is some debate about this. Uh, an FBI dis- uh, official described it as uh, it had to be the most boring meeting of all time because according to the people who were at it, none of them said anything. Yeah. Uh, that it was the other two. And all three of them said it was the other two. Uh, it looks as though uh, M- Magruder says that Mitchell okayed it at that meeting. 
I I believe that the evidence suggests that Mitchell didn't okay it. He said, yeah, I, let's, well, let's put it for, off. Yeah, I mean, D- and D- Dean, as you know, as we talked about last week, who's was, was really tried to rewrite his role in all this stuff throughout mm-hmm. the years, has always maintained Mitchell did not sign off on this. At, I don't that, think or, or any time before it happened. So I think Magruder did. I think Magruder yeah. goes back and simply to get Colson and Haldeman, who are now pressing him. You know, the president wants this. When are these dirty tricks going to be put in place? Yep. Uh, the president wants this. You need to do it. And I think he simply goes off, oh, fuck it. And he authorizes $250,000 to these guys and they're off and running. The, yep. Ellsberg, the Ellsberg burglary takes place. Various other little campaign things they they go after uh senator uh, edmund muskie yes who uh, edmund muskie i think it's important to note you know as we were talking earlier there uh, nixon was not polling favorably in general but in a head-to-head muskie was outpacing him quite comfortably at this point and had a a very good i mean what, one of the most respected members of the u.s senate ever uh ends up being uh the secretary of state as well under uh, jimmy carter um but yeah, they, they, they go after Muskie, and a lot of it is, you know, small things like when they're at campaign stops because Muskie, a furious campaigner in '72, uh, until he drops out. But while they're at campaign stops, they um like they, they'll steal his staffer's shoes when they leave him out <laughs> polished at night. You know, li- little shit. But yeah. they also uh, find a Wait, guy. They do quite a big thing, yes. Well, yeah. Well, they, yeah, they do a few. They find a guy who uh, volunteers. He's an old New York City uh, police officer to uh, uh, volunteer to be his uh, chauffeur. And so he volunteers for the Muskie campaign saying, oh, yeah, I really want to do this and blah, blah, blah. And they just, they sign him up. Don't bother checking. So this guy's, uh, you know, chauffeuring Muskie and his, his campaign staff around and everything. And then, you know, he, at night he's going to their office, stealing documents, going to a, a, a Xerox machine that he'd rented and kept in an apartment somewhere, copying all these documents and then taking them back in the morning. Um they they write the uh, the the Canuck letter uh, saying that Muskie uh, you know liked using the uh, the anti French Canadian slur uh, Canucks Canuck. um, because he, he's he's the senator from Maine of course right there on the, on the border of Quebec uh, they accuse his wife as something that we'll see later with Martha Mitchell uh, of being you know a drunk and a loudmouth at parties and just unladylike. Um, and Mitchell finally cracks under all this pressure. There, there's a, a, a yeah, newspaper editor, or, or sorry, yeah, Muskie finally cracks under all this, uh, where he gives a speech on the front steps of a uh, a New Hampshire newspaper that ran a letter planted by the plumbers. Uh, it was the the one from uh, San Diego. What's his name? He comes up in uh, all the president's men. Um, oh, Baldwin. No, the the other I can't the the one the one that uh, oh um, Donald Segretti yes yes Segretti uh, pens this letter uh, decrying all this shit about Muskie and his wife and everything. Muskie gives a speech, you know, he's standing there in a blizzard, and because of the the, the snow's hitting him on his face, it looks like he's crying. It looks like he's breaking down. I think he is crying. I, I think, I think he, gets, he is at some point too because he, gets, I think he, he is really fucking. Angry. I mean, he's he furious. They've gone after his wife, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, uh, I mean, as a as and again, like like we said, you know, people have gone after Pat Nixon and 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 you know their children. And so Nixon, Nixon oh, this, this is fucking awful. But uh, when he does it, it's okay because famously, as we find out later, when the <laughs> president does it. 
it's not illegal. That means it is not illegal. <laughs> and they call this, incidentally, folks, they call these kind of campaign dirty tricks. We would call them illegal lies, but uh, they call it rat fucking. Yes, rat fucking. Rat fucking, <laughs> which is, you know, a, a wonderful, wonderful term for it. Well, I, that's, I, yeah, Segretti and Baldwin's term for it from uh, whatever, UCLA or wherever it was they went to school. More, more if, Southern California guys, by the way, if you're not noticing a trend. But yes. pretty much everybody involved in not you know there's there's two links they all end up going to jail besides Nixon and they're almost all from Southern California yep. Nixon loyalists <laughs> they, they, yep. you know these these were not Republicans as in the you know the R word it, it, they were Nixon first and yep. the party that we're attached to second yep. but to tell you how different things are folks between now uh, and then he goes on TV. And he is seen to be crying because he's upset because they've insulted his wife. And right from the first news report, the reporter said, and remember, these anchors were so trusted. Yep. Um, he says Senator Edmund Muskie appeared to break down. Um, he's a candidate for president and Americans must decide if that's the type of man they want in the White House. In other words, look at this fucking baby. Yeah, yeah look at this little crying. bitch over here. Yeah, crying. <laughs> Uh, and well, so said, it derails Muskie's campaign immediately. Completely, and, uh, he's done. Yeah. He has to pull out um, yep. a few weeks later. And the Nixon team gets, go. as we find out from the tapes and written memos, again, don't write shit down, uh, later during all these court cases, that they wanted George McGovern from uh, South Dakota, who they viewed as a very soft candidate, and a Nailed candidate who's only... Yep, his only real campaign point was ending the Vietnam War, which still... Hmm. Even in '72, was uh, not not 50, 50. Lo- losing a war is not something yeah. Americans like to do. So, no, it was polling at fifty-fifty. So yeah. no, you're absolutely correct. And um, you know, he, he 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 would have been unelectable in any period of American history. He was yeah. far too left-wing to yeah. even. I mean, he would be close. I mean, he didn't. To, he doesn't even win his own state in 1972. Yeah, he, the only he, state he, he wins is Massachusetts. So he he, he just was, you know, total sacrificial lamb because they've got the one who could win out of it. Yeah. Uh, and it is very clever. But as uh, John Ehrlichman said years later, he said, you know, people ask me how can a man like Richard Nixon become president and maybe the same would be said about trump these days or or george w bush or or even bill clinton you know i mean with with his peccadillos and ehrlichman i think nails it he said well you look at someone like governor muskie he said our process is designed to weed out people like him who are human (laughs) and he said and then what you're left with when you take out these people who display human emotions and are normal is you're left with these wild damaged crazy avaricious sexually well i mean the, this was ehrlichman's uh you know he, he gave this interview uh, in harper's magazine years years later so, the, you know the nixon campaign in 68 and the uh, the white house after that had two enemies uh quote the anti-war left and black people you understand what i'm saying we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. So, I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. they didn't give a shit. You were, you were against them. That was yeah, all this ever was. That was all that, that mattered to that. You were either with them or you were against them. And they start this. I mean, this is now modern politics. You would get bipartisanship. Um, back in the day, you don't get it now, and it you trace this right back to this. It was we don't give a flat, and we see it 
you know, those of you who are listening from Scotland, we see it here just now, that we appeal to our supporters and we don't give a shit about governing the rest of you. Yep. We don't give a shit if you're happy, unhappy. We don't want to help you. You're either in our tent, uh, in which case you do exactly what we say, yep. or you're not in our tent, in which case we don't give a flying fuck. Well, you, and, you, yeah, you're in our tent, pissing out of our tent, or that's yep. it. <laughs> oh, that's it, yeah. Yep. Or we're pissing on you from the tent. And yeah. It's all traceable back to Richard Nixon. Yep. And uh, next week, then, <laughs> three episodes unchained. You know, yes. we did tell people it was going to be a long journey. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot of setup here. Yeah. Well, there I mean, there's, uh, trust up. me, but remember the, the, the text about the Pentagon Papers here, because there's there's a court case with this one that, that corresponds, you know, with, with the, the Watergate break-in case, too, wherein um, people start to find out in public, the kind of shit that the Nixon White House was getting up to, because it doesn't really come out in the trial of the Watergate burglars until James nope. McCord writes a letter to Judge. Right, John spoiler, Perica. spoiler. But, but there, there's a lot of shit in the Ellsberg case that, um, you know, they find out that they're willing to tap the phones of private citizens for years at a time, that they're willing to break <laughs> in to their therapist's office to try to steal files on them, and I- these are really. The revelations that and we'll get to here that that forces out these key members of Nixon's White House because it's stuff that comes out in the the Daniel Ellsberg case, which much like their case against the New York Times gets punted out of court because you, you can't do this kind of shit. No, you cannot. <laughs> so yeah, that that will kind of do is for this week, folks. Next yeah. week when we come back, we're going to do the burglary which is a story in itself. And the cover-up begins, and it begins, Shane, immediately. Yep, that week. Again, if, if, if you need to, you go back, you listen to the, the, the audio clips at the beginning of the show, and we're going to listen to the smoking gun tape next week because it is known within the first week of the White House as we find out that, yep, we fucked this one up, and we need to take care of it right now. <laughs> and uh, an immediate illegal act will be made involving the <laughs> FBI and the CIA. And uh, for anybody who maybe have come into this thinking that partisan witch hunts go on, which they do, and any of you who maybe came into this thinking that, well, I wonder if you know perhaps it was an overblown thing, which happens, mm. uh, if people used it to get rid of a political enemy. Uh, no. No, they did no. this. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, that's, you know, again, had it just been Watergate, yeah, you could have sold it as a partisan. In fact, they, they did for a long time. Well, sold it as a partisan witch hunt. But when the reality of all this stuff starts pooling together, because as we said, I mean, this is a this is a White House just wrapped in illegal activities. We still, later on, we're going to talk about the vice president doing some illegal shit. We are, at the I'm same really time, completely, to that. completely separate from Watergate. Yes, uh, I am really looking forward to getting into old Spiro. What a character he is! Um, uh, and yeah, that. But I think I, I hope that we've kind of in the first couple of yeah. episodes, folks, we wanted to you know show you who Richard Nixon was, but then to to kind of paint the picture that, as Shane mentioned there, this is not a one-off. This is a no. pattern of behaviour by a White House who simply did not believe that the laws applied to them and that everything they did was justified because it was all about retaining power. And yep. I'm afraid that there's a name for that and it's called fascism. <laughs> well, you see, I put up the questions uh, just like we always do with the Crow Pod every week. And we're, we're going to take one here quick since uh, we, we got a few from uh, Kath McKay. Yes. Uh, who do you think is looking forward to the meeting less, Henry Kissinger or Satan? 
Yeah. Um, I, I think Henry, Shane and I actually were discussing this just before we came on air. Um, I, I think Henry Kissinger's Teflon-like qualities should be investigated by NASA because yeah. he... <laughs> Has a remarkable. I, I urge any of you a very short but wonderful book um, is the the trial of Henry Kissinger by Christopher Hitchens, and uh, I know some of you might go, "Oh, Christopher Lefty," um, but trust me, the the evidence stacks up. Kissinger could be done on the Chenault affair. He could be done on the illegal bombing of Cambodia. He could be done on what he did in Indonesia. He could be done on what he did in South America. Henry Kissinger's career is awful. And Shane wasn't joking at the start, folks, when he said, this guy's got the blood of millions on his hands, because he absolutely does. Oh, if you want to, so just go check out his Wikipedia article and just, just start with the, uh, the foreign policy section and just scroll down through. And you'll, you'll notice a trend in a lot of these... Uh, names and, and the places that he's involved with, whether it's Chile or Argentina or Brazil's nuclear weapons program, Rhodesia, Face. you know, I mean, there, there, there's nothing good in here. There's <laughs> a lot of, a lot of military juntas that he was, yeah. he was, you know, in league with yes, um, many, many, many totalitarian fascist right wing governments. That, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think it is, a testament to his ability to, to to be a good speaker, which he is. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's a super. He was a Harvard professor. He's a super intelligent man. Um, there's there's zero doubt about that. But I, I think even these days, you would at least be a pariah. I mean, if you look at Tony Blair, Iraq, he'll never ever get over that. And whenever he comes into public view, even if he's saying something sensible, people go, "Ah, oh, fuck off, Tony." You know. You yeah. know, they, they don't want to hear it. Whereas Kissinger has never really lost his ability no, to command attention. he's still attention. welcomed in everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, oh, and he was also on the board. <laughs> I love this. Um, just for his capacity to, to pick bad relationships. Um, he was on the board of Theranos, yeah. which was Elizabeth Holmes' company. Uh, those of you who may have seen Bad Blood. Uh, the the story of <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes, uh, who was a, a fraudster, um, but I nothing seems to stick to him, even though there is no. documented evidence, even though there's a, a, we've got tapes of him admitting doing illegal stuff, oh, and yeah. yet nothing's Doesn't ever mean. happened. Oh, uh, famously, you know, we can tie this one in too. He was the chairman of the uh, NASL board of directors of the, the, oh, the failed North American Soccer League back in the seventies. So yeah, he's a, he's a big football guy. He is. Yeah, uh, I guess that's I mean, about the only redeeming thing about him. Yeah, he uh, likes, the rest of it's he li- terrible. <laughs> he likes proper football, and of course, uh, he he did sport uh, in Cuba at one point, some yep. soccer fields, and he went to the the president and said, "We need to do something." They're like, "Why? They're just you know soccer fields," and he said, uh, "Cubans don't play soccer; they play baseball. Russians play soccer." That's <laughs> it. And he was right, you know. Again and again, it's that intellect. You know, he was clear. He was right. He saw from Spice Alex, but uh, a very, very unpleasant man. Yep. And I, I, I warn you now, uh, right at the start of this, folks, he fucking sails through Watergate. He oh, yeah. never is in any, never ever in any bother with it. Nope, doesn't touch him at all. He, he, he gets, he's one of the few who leaves the White House by his own accord after Gerald Ford comes. You know, he finally yeah. gets sick of Ford's inaction and just, all right, fuck this, I'm done. Mm-hmm. So, 
Well, that's it. Uh, let's see. If you like the show, please scroll down in the show notes. Uh, there's a uh, buy me a coffee link down there. You can help out the Crow Pod. And, of course, David with heart and hand. If you just head over to their Patreon site, you can do that. And we also have a special charity down there in the notes. I mentioned it on this week's regular show. But uh, go, go ahead. Just scroll down through stuff. Uh, even if you can't, uh, if you don't want to help us out, try to pitch in for this charity that we're helping out this week. So, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Avoid. David, you can find on Twitter at Ibrox Rocks, and of course, everything heart and hand. Thanks again, David. Oh, huge, huge pleasure, man. I mean, I'm really enjoying this. I hope the yeah. listeners are. Um, uh, and we've we've still got a long, long way to go, folks. Well, I mean, this uh, again, long we, we've talked for over two hours and we haven't started. <laughs> we haven't got to the burglary <laughs> yet. Um, but, but you know, you, you'll leave this with, uh, a fairly decent overview, uh, I think it's fair to say. But uh, again, you know, thanks for doing it, Shane, and uh, get the questions in, folks. Yep, yep, send them on in. And uh, next one coming back next week, we're getting to the actual Watergate itself. So we'll talk to you then. Bye. It is just too tricky for a chump like me to you. You take that stuff, you made a serious bye, and I'm serious. You just might get a seizure from the evening news.